Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty. And I welcome each of you here this morning. We come from a long tradition that sees a spark of the divine in every person. And it's in that spirit that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. It is also one of our traditions in Unitarian Universalist churches to light a chalice to begin our service. The chalice is a symbol of our faith. Please read with me our words for lighting the chalice. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Good morning. I'm your lay leader, Mary Jane Ford, and I'm going to read the call to worship, which was written by the Reverend Chris Jimerson. Come into this community where love abounds. Come join us as love flows beyond these walls and moves us to act for justice. Bring with you your vulnerabilities and sorrows as we build up our courage together. Bring with you also your great joys as we share our joys with one another. Come into this sacred space. Come on to this hallowed ground. Come, let us worship together. We Unitarian Universalists are a pluralistic faith. We draw from all of the world's faith and wisdom traditions. We don't have a set of beliefs we all have to sign on to, a creed. So sometimes people ask us, well, then what holds you together if you don't have a common belief system? Well, I think a lot holds this religion together. As Unitarian Universalists, we have seven principles that we share. If you haven't read about those, you can see those at uua.org. In this church, we have a set of values that we have discerned, and out of those values arose our mission statement. We say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. And this morning, we have Bruce Elfont, our Travis County tax assessor collector and voter registrar, who's here to make a presentation to us about how this congregation is living out its mission, even as we speak. Thank you. Good morning. I promise I'm not collecting taxes this morning. We're here to give an award to the Unitarian Church for your civic engagement with regard to voter registration. And I wanted to let you all know how this got started. A few years ago, Mary Patrick came to me and asked if we would do a voter registration deputy volunteer uh, registrar training here. And I said, for 10 or more, we'd be happy to come out. And there were 30. It was great. Maybe some of y'all were there. Um, and it was great. And the next week she said, you know, some couldn't make it. And uh, could you come out one more time? And this is where you want to be careful about your words. What I told Mary was for you, if there's 10 or more, I'd come every week. Well, 88 weeks later, um, we had, yes. I mean, there are Broadway plays that don't last that long, so. 
88 weeks later, more than 2,500 Travis County citizens came through your doors to, to become volunteer deputy registrars, and it was just amazing. So I wanted you all to hear that story. Um, President Roosevelt said that the only way we can lose our right to vote is by not voting. And unfortunately, the United States is rapidly becoming a non-voting nation. Uh, the fact is, is that we're a hundredth, one hundredth in the world in voter turnout. We're a hundredth. That's not very exceptional. And, but it gets worse. Texas is 50th in the nation when it comes to voter turnout. So Texas is like the most non-voting state, that didn't say, the least voting state, I, I don't want to be redundant, the, the least voting state in the nation, and that, that's shameful. So here in Travis County, we determined that if we're going to turn that around, it's going to have to start here in Travis County. So two years ago, we set some ambitious goals. Um, at that time, our voter registration was about 600,000 citizens. About 82% of eligible citizens were registered. We wanted to boost it to 90%, which meant that we would have to add, not register, but add another 100,000 voters. And a lot of people said, that, that's nice. Good luck with that. Um, so we set a 90% goal. Um, and thanks in large part to the Unitarian Church, we recruited more than 3,000 volunteer deputy registrars who represented 500 community organizations and spoke 62 languages. And on the day, yeah, we didn't use all the languages, but it was nice to have them. <laughs> on the October 11th deadline, we had more than 600 volunteer deputy registrars out at more than 50 locations at Thunderclub Subs, Alamo Draft Houses, Tax Office locations. I see people nodding, so I know there were people here who were out on the deadline. Well, y'all registered 20,000 people that day. That day. That, that surely is a record for, for the state. There's never been a county where 20,000 people registered to vote in a single day. So thank you all for that. So our goal was 100,000. We actually added 120,000 registered voters. Our, our goal was 90% registration. We actually hit 92.6, um, thanks in large part to the work that y'all did. The, the other good news is that the turnout, you know, voter registration by itself doesn't matter if people don't turn out, right? The point is, is participating. And the other good news is that Travis County was second in the state um, in voter turnout. 65% of our registered voters actually turned out to vote. And uh, compared to other nations and states, that's not great. But for Texas, that really is great. And the only county that was ahead of us is Fort Bend County. And we will not let that happen again, will we? Yeah. So the Unitarian Church played a large part in making this happen. You opened your doors to thousands who became volunteer deputy registrars and helped make Travis County history. And Mary Patrick personally welcomed and greeted every visitor who came through these doors um, to be volunteer deputy registrars. She was here for the 88 weeks and then some. So Mary, thank you so much. So for all your dedication, a dedication to civic engagement, the Travis County Tax Office awards the Unitarian Church this recognition for helping make Travis County achieve our 92.6% uh, registration record and enhancing civic engagement in our community. So thank you all so much. The centering reading is by James Luther Adams from Being Human Religiously. Whatever the destiny of the planet or of the individual life 
A sustaining meaning is discernible and commanding in the here and now. Anyone who denies this denies that there is anything worth taking seriously or even worth talking about. Every blade of grass, every work of art, every scientific endeavor, every striving for righteousness bears witness to this meaning. Indeed, every frustration or perversion of truth, beauty, or goodness also bears this witness as the shadow points round to the sun. Now is the time in our service where we breathe together. We breathe together. And feeling one another's presence all around us, breathing together, we follow our breath to that deeper place inside, that spark of the divine, that place of greater wisdom. Breathing together, we enter a time of silence together, remembering that the sounds of small children are a part of the sacred silence in this congregation. Breathing together, we enter a time of sacred silence together. When I was a child attending a little Southern Baptist church in the southeast Texas town of Groves, one of the stories they used to tell us in Sunday school was that one from the Hebrew scripture about David and Goliath that you just heard in the story for all ages. Now, when I was writing the sermon, I didn't realize that was the story for story for all ages. So I'm going to review briefly with you a shorter southeast Texas version of that story. As you heard, Goliath is this giant Philistine warrior who is taunting King Saul and the Israelites, daring any one of them to come out and do battle with him. Saul and the Israelites are terrified. And this goes on for 40 days. Why is it that everything in the Hebrew scriptures goes on for 40 days and 40 nights? What is that about? Until this guy, David, somewhere between boyhood and young man, arrives on the scene and tells King Saul that he will battle Goliath. Eventually, Saul reluctantly agrees, fearing David is too young, too small, and too inexperienced. As you heard, he loans David his coat of armor, his helmet, and his sword, but they're too big and too heavy for David to use them. So instead, David goes out to challenge the giant with nothing but a wooden staff, his slingshot, and five smooth stones that he gathers from a stream and places in his pouch. Now, as soon as Goliath sees David, he bellows, Well, look at you, you little pipsqueak. I'm going to kill you dead. That's the Southeast Texas version of (laughs) Goliath. And then David goes on for a while about the Lord God Almighty being on his side and that kind of thing until finally they charge right at each other, the giant with a sword raised overhead. David takes a stone out of his pouch, loads it in the slingshot, and strikes Goliath right in the center of the forehead with it. Giant Goliath falls to the ground, at which point David runs over, cuts off the giant's head using Goliath's own sword. This is followed by much celebration, David having what seems to be a gay love affair with Saul's son Jonathan, 
and David becoming a great warrior who would eventually become the king himself. They didn't really talk about the David and Jonathan thing in my little Southern Baptist church. They did tell us that the meaning of this story was about how even the weak can prevail against their adversaries with the power of the Lord God Almighty on their side. Now, even as a small child, that explanation didn't ring true for me. For me, it seemed like David had prevailed because he'd been quite ingenious by coming up with one of the first documented examples of insurgent asymmetrical warfare. (laughs) Yes, I was a budding liberal religious geek even back then. Now, I repeat this whole David and Goliath story because it's also the genesis of another reinterpretation of it by our preeminent 20th century Unitarian Universalist theologian, minister, and scholar, James Luther Adams. Much of Adams' thinking was greatly informed by what he witnessed while he was in Germany during the rise of Nazism. It is amazing and a little scary, too, then, that so many of his ideas are still relevant today. I think even those who aren't familiar with James Luther Adams or his work will recognize the influence his ideas still have within Unitarian Universalist thought and theology. Specifically, Adams' ideas that I want to explore today have to do with how, as a liberal religion, and a small one at that, it can certainly feel sometimes like we're up against one or even more Goliaths. So these are Adams' ideas around what if liberal religion were to pick up five smooth stones like David did? What would be the tenets that those stones might represent? I'll go briefly through all five of them in his words, which can be academic and a little dense sometimes, and then we'll break them down a little. James Luther Adams' five stones of liberal religion are, one, revelation is continuous. Two, all relations between persons ought ideally to rest on mutual free consent and not on coercion. Three, We affirm the moral obligation to direct one's effort toward establishment of a just and loving community. Four, we deny the immaculate conception of virtue and affirm the necessity of social incarnation. And five, the resources, divine and human, that are available for the achievement of meaningful change justify an ultimate attitude of optimism. Now, Adams used the words God and divine pretty freely. So let me take a quick diversion here to read for you his word about such terms. He writes, To be sure, the word God is so heavily laden with unacceptable connotations that it is, for many people, scarcely usable without confusion. Indeed, the word God may, in the present context, be replaced by the phrase that which ultimately concerns humanity or that in which we should place our confidence. God, or that in which we may have faith, is the inescapable commanding reality that sustains and transforms all meaningful existence. So, with that in mind, let's go through each smooth stone in a little more detail now. The first stone is that revelation is continuous. 
unlike some fundamentalist religions which believe that once God had laid down the sacred scriptures, he said, well, that's it. Revelation is now sealed for all eternity. Move along now. Nothing else to see here. We do not believe that. We believe that we are always still learning. We must continue to question what we think we know to be the truth. As our island of knowledge expands, so too does the shoreline of unknowing and mystery. We don't provide creeds or easy answers, but we do support one another in a free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. We're responsible for seeking out that meaning in those new revelations because they help us understand more and more what our creative possibilities are. I think we see this in this church all the time, as people of all ages explore together the mysteries of living creative, fulfilling, meaningful, and ethical lives. We do this in worship, in our faith development classes, and throughout the life of this church. The second stone is that all relations between persons ought ideally to rest on mutual free consent and not on coercion. Now, of course, Adams recognizes that this can't be absolute. We require children to go to school, for example. He is warning us, though, that both religion and the state can easily become coercive, that even persuasion, if it is based on fear, can easily, quote, be perverted into a camouflage for duress. It becomes coercive. Sound familiar these days? Adam reminds us that liberal religion grew out of an aversion to overly hierarchical ecclesiastical pecking orders, as he put it. That means church denominational structures that were extremely top-down and coercive in nature. We see this rejection of extreme hierarchy even today in the way Unitarian Universalism is organized through a system called congregational polity. Each church owns its own property elects its own board of trustees, and calls its own senior minister. We are an association of churches, but our Unitarian Universalist Association staff bureaucracy has no legal authority over any individual church. We also see this stone reflected in our covenant of healthy relations at this church, which describes how we will be in right relationship with one another. As ministers, Mag and I don't get to use the promise of heaven or the threat of hell to grant ourselves authority or as coercion to try to get people to up their stewardship pledge. No, Bill. (laughs) Ours is a beloved community based on mutual free consent and not on coercion. Adam's third stone involves the moral obligation to direct one's efforts toward the establishment of a just and loving community. We must build the beloved community, that community of love and justice, both within our church walls and perhaps more importantly, beyond them. Adams wrote, a faith that is not the sister of justice is bound to bring us grief becomes stale and thwarts the inherent creative potential of its people. He continued, Freedom, justice, and love require a body as well as a spirit. We do not live by spirit alone. A purely spiritual religion is a purely spurious religion. It is one that exempts its believer from surrender to the sustaining, transforming reality that demands the community. 
of love and justice. For the church to be alive and fulfilling its promise, we must be a prophetic church, a church that is participating in the processes that give body and form to love and justice in our world and is making a moral demand for such love and justice from our political and societal leaders. We see this in First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin through the call to do justice in our mission, through our many social justice and interfaith efforts, our people of color group, our alphabet soup group, and our white allies for racial equity group, just to give a few examples. We see it through so many of our church members also being involved in nonprofit and human rights groups. Our church members are out in what Adams called the conflicts and turmoils of the world. They are making love and justice real, answering the moral obligation to grow the beloved community. The fourth stone is that we deny the immaculate conception of virtue and affirm the necessity of social incarnation. This one is saying that good doesn't happen by itself, that we must make it happen by our actions, and that the good requires social and institutional forms. Freedom, love, and justice can only be built through organizations, educational, economic, social, and political organizations. Freedom, love, and justice require, in Adam's words, the organization of power and the power of organization. Our church and our faith must inspire our members to participate in such organizations and, when necessary, build them if they do not yet exist. Given the authoritarianism and white supremacies that we are witnessing in our world these days, Adam's call to organize power seems all the more prophetic now. A strong example of this in this congregation was when, as many of you know, we offered sanctuary to Sulma Franco, an asylum seeker from Guatemala who feared deportation back to a country where her life had been threatened because of her activism on behalf of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer rights. In the three months that Sulma lived on our campus, some of you participated with us as we organized a coalition of local churches, religious leaders, and immigrant and human rights organizations. That coalition worked with Sulma on a successful campaign to pressure Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, to grant Sulma a stay of removal. The stay would allow her to stay in the U.S. while the government processed a visa application she had submitted that would give her legal residency status if approved. A little over two years ago, ICE granted Sulma that stay of removal, and that network I mentioned has continued to expand and grow, forming the Austin Sanctuary Network, consisting of well over a dozen local churches and many, many local nonprofits and human rights groups, and that network has since helped our sister sanctuary church, St. Andrew's Presbyterian, offer sanctuary to another immigrant and her young son who recently got deferred removal. I'm also thrilled to let you know that a few months ago, I went with some members of the ancient Austin Sanctuary Network to accompany Sulma to the ICE office in San Antonio, where they granted her stay of removal for a second year. Then, just a few days ago, Sulma learned that the government has approved her visa application. She has won legal residency status in the U.S.
that, that is Adam's organization of power and power of organization. Now, Adam's fifth and final stone asserts that the resources, divine and human, that are available for the achievement of meaningful change justify an attitude of ultimate optimism. Now, this isn't a blind or naive optimism, nor is it an immediate optimism. It is not even that the arc of the universe necessarily bends towards justice. For Adams, it is an optimism that we have all that we need to bend that arc towards justice ourselves. If, with each new generation, we choose to have the tenacity, courage, perseverance, and strength to do so. And Adams recognized that we would experience setbacks. We would make mistakes. He saw that we humans also have a tragic side to our nature, that we can fall prey to the evils of greed, hatred, nihilism, tribalism, war, and violence. And he thought that because of this, we needed to adapt greater humility. And yet, he also wrote of the great liberal and progressive visionaries who he said, All sense that at the depths of human nature and at the boundaries of what we are, there are potential resources that can prevent a retreat to nihilism. The affirmative answer of prophetic religion, which may be heard even in the very midst of the doom that threatens like thunder, is that history is a struggle in dead earnest between justice and injustice, looking toward the ultimate victory in the promise and the fulfillment of grace. We have the resources we need. Grace is when we see them and we utilize them. In this church, we have our values, transcendence, community, compassion, courage, transformation. We have our mission. We have our covenant, and through it, we have our healthy relations with one another. I first came to this church over 12 years ago, and since that time, I've seen it go through many a challenge and triumph. I think one of this congregation's great strengths has been and continues to be a willingness to reach for those resources, divine and human, that are available for the achievement of meaningful change of which Adams wrote. This congregation is filled with love, kindness, humor, joy and a willingness to forgive, as well as to see difference and disagreement as potential assets. These resources give us reason for that attitude of ultimate optimism of which Adams wrote. I'd like to leave you with a formulation of the five smooth stones that I saw Connie Goodbread, one of our Unitarian Universalist Association Southern Region staff members, present a while back. I just loved it, and Connie was kind enough to send me her slide. She took each of the five stones and associated a concept or value word with it. Here's how that works. Because revelation is continuous, nearly endless discoveries and possibilities lie before us, so we may have great hope. When our relationships are consensual, not coerced, we can know the true depth of a healthy and life-giving love, a love held in sacred covenant with one another. 
Fulfilling our obligation to work toward a just and loving community also allows us to know justice in our own lives. When we deny the immaculate conception of virtue and work to create good in the world through organizing with others, we build up our own courage. Because we have those resources, human and divine, to achieve meaningful change, we may rejoice and know joy. Hope, love, justice, courage, joy. May we carry these five stones with us throughout our days and throughout the life of this church and our beloved Unitarian Universalism. Amen. Please join me as we say our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go now with hearts overflowing with hope. Go knowing that the love in this community goes with you until next we are together again. Go now and create justice in our world, filled with the courage to do so and the joy of knowing that nearly endless possibilities still stretch before us. May the congregation say amen and blessed be. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.